So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1372, closing the racial wealth gap with Xavier Ramey, CEO of Justice Informed. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. It is Monday, June 20th, 2022. Today, we commemorate Juneteenth to honor human freedom, reflect on the devastating and ongoing legacy of slavery. And as the White House says, Juneteenth is a moment to rededicate ourselves to rooting out the systemic racism that continues to plague our society. In honor of Juneteenth, we have with us Xavier Ramey. He's an award-winning social strategist, a noted public speaker, he's a conflict mediator, and he's CEO of Justice Informed. It's a company that helps clients, including many Fortune 500 companies, catalyze strategies for inclusion, philanthropy, corporate social responsibility, and community engagement. I first met Xavier about a month ago. We were both invited to an event called Disruptive Discourse. It was a series of incredible panels, talks, and roundtable discussions encircling workplace diversity, equity, and inclusion. The event was presented by Of Color, which is a financial wellness platform. I actually moderated a panel, and then Xavier gave what was just an incredibly powerful keynote on the state of racial inequality through his eyes, as well as his ideas for moving the needle forward. And I actually want to share some of that keynote here with you now, so you can see why I just had to have Xavier on the show. And here he is talking about the need to address the racial wealth barrier with greater urgency and how his upbringing shaped his ideologies. The pace of racial change in America can no longer move at the pace of white fragility. Hard stop. You see, it is the fragilities of those who have privilege who often set the pace for progress. That is fundamentally the challenge of power. This is why it is important for everyone to recognize their own power, to recognize their own privileges. Some of these powers and privileges are ones that we are born with. Some of them are assumed over time. I was born in the North Lawndale neighborhood in Chicago. If you've ever read Todd Nahissi Coates' The Case for Reparations, that is the neighborhood I grew up in. It was the one that stimulated him to author such a piece, to talk about what is the claim for reparations in America. It is defined by this experience even. The cost of racism, by some estimates, is $70 trillion. That's according to Sean Rochester, author of The Black Tax. In his book, he calculated that racism in the United States since the start of slavery has left a toll of $70 trillion. And so Xavier is here to help us better understand this urgent conflict, expand on his keynote, and propose newer ideas on how companies and individuals, you know, how we can reimagine what it would take to create a more equitable world. Here's Xavier Ramey. Xavier Ramey, welcome to So Money. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. I'm glad to be here with you. It's nice to reconnect. Um, I was just saying in the intro that I had the great honor earlier in May 
to moderate a panel at the Of Color event. Of Color founded by Yami Rose, who has been on this show. He's a big advocate for closing wealth gaps. He's an inspiring entrepreneur and Of Color is his company. And he had an event um, where he had some really powerful panels and you there as well as his keynote to uh, move the audience. And I was moved, Xavier. I really was. It was such an incredible end to the morning. Um, I took so many notes. And as I was walking back to my house, I thought I would love to have Xavier on the show because you need to be out there more. I want my audience to learn from you as much as I learn. I had so much follow-up too that I would love to to, to you know, get into with you now. Yeah. yeah. So why don't you just take the stage for a little bit and tell us a little bit about your company, Justice Informed, what the mission is, what's driving the mission? Yeah. So uh, Justice Informed is a social impact consulting firm. Uh, It's based in the city of Chicago, but we are very fortunate to be working coast to coast in the U.S. and uh, a bit actually globally now. Uh, We work with all types of different institutional types, uh, from small nonprofits to startup uh, for-profit companies up to Fortune 500s um, with philanthropic foundations and persons who are interested in charitable giving. All of the work that we do primarily, however, is looking at this, this point of the question of authorship, authorization and specificity and social impact. And so what we mean by authorship, uh, our mantra is we are here to change the face of expertise. Uh, What that means is that when we're talking about social impact, we're often talking about um, impacting communities and people uh, who often don't have the authority to author the solutions that most impact their lives. So when you're talking about affordable housing, it's often not persons who are experiencing housing insecurity that are drafting legislative agendas. Um, When you're talking about a developer moving into, in Chicago, for instance, the West Loop, been building some high-rise skyscraper with luxury condominiums for three to $4,000 a month and a pool and all these types of things. Um, there's not usually a conversation with displaced re- residents uh, about the community benefits agreements or the lack thereof um, for those types of institutions and those types of civic plans. Our hope is that the world, as it relates to social impact, um, is informed by those persons for whom impact is most needed. Um, that the pace of change for social justice and social uh, equity moves at the pace of the need and ambitions for those who are unsafe without it, not the, the fears uh, and discomfort of people who are simply uncomfortable uh, about the conversation or about what it may cost them. And so this point around authorship is really important. And then secondly, authorization um, and using influence. So we work with a lot of really big companies as well. I'm, I'm blessed to be the executive advisor for some Fortune 500 global leadership teams. Um, and, and the issues of, for instance, diversity, equity, inclusion, which is one of our major service areas, uh, we engage that with them in really powerful ways. But it's so different, you know, when you're talking about DEI in, let's say, India or Pakistan, or you're talking about it in Egypt, or you're talking about DEI in uh, Italy or across anywhere in Europe versus here in the United States. Uh, And though issues of discrimination and anti-Blackness and racism and climate issues and all this kind of stuff is felt everywhere, how it shows up is really regionally specific. And so our second mantra is one of relational specificity. We are always trying to be super specific about who we're dealing with. That means that all of my team, they have to be very, very granular, very, very tactical about being specific about the people that they're speaking about and those who are empowering us to develop strategies for them. 
It's not just people of color, as we like to say. Yeah, it's 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 all intersectional. So it's it's not just about, for instance, one type of point of marginality race. Um, it is about all of the ways that they intersect with one another in how we build our systems, how we use culture to envision our communities, and then how we create or do not create accountability across time. I wrote down the word pace and specificity yeah. and urgency as you were giving your keynote. And, you know, speaking of pace and urgency, a lot of people might see, maybe they read headlines or they notice at their own companies that there has been advancement, let's just call it that, since, say, the murder of George Floyd in 2020. DEI wasn't even in the vernacular, right? This, this idea that companies are now going to dedicate departments to creating more inclusivity and, and diversity at their companies. The pace is too slow, though. You think that we should be moving faster. So <laughs> how do we do that? And what do you think of how, of the nature currently of how companies are approaching their solutions to closing wealth gaps and being more diverse? Yeah, pace is really important. Um you know, the, the reason when I, when I started Justice Informed, part of the reason why I started it was because I had been working for um, all different types of institutions and simply did not feel that the pace of change and the urgency uh, was one that was moving at the pace of my ambitions. Um, I believe that all of possibility it lives between the ambitions and fears of those who have power over you. If they have ambitions that you share, then they'll ask you to work with them. If they have fears, however, they will ask that you submit to them. Uh, and so if a person is afraid of using, for instance, specific language like social justice, you know, you go into some corporations and they say, oh, that's, that's, that's political. Um, you use terms like anti-blackness to be very specific about types of systemic racism. People would say, oh, that's, 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 that's a very radical term. Um, that they're pointing to the fact that they may agree with your path. They may agree like racism is wrong. We both agree. But mm, being that urgent in language, I don't agree with that. You know, that's going to polarize people or that's going to we need to listen to how some people are afraid of that term. And mm -hmm. we need to set the pace according to their fear rather than setting the pace according to your ambitions or your need for life. And so justice informed, the whole point is to be informed by justice, is to step away from being informed solely by profit, step away from being informed solely by wealth accumulation, step away from being informed by fear and say, what would it mean if we were informed by justice, which is an accountable relationship with the people that are around us, ensuring that we're not simply talking about equality, we're understanding that equality is an outcome where there is equity. And so mm -hmm. our strategies and structures and paths and processes, all of our relationships are about committing to the what we have to do in the near term. The present day is all about how do we engage in accountability in our relationships and how we design society. That is the work of equity towards a future where we can actually be equal. Yes, I was hearing you on a, another podcast. You were saying how we have to tweak this idea of like human to humane, like thinking yeah. about it in those contexts. Um, so can you give us an example of when you have been encountering this resistance uh, with a client who's like, Xavier, <laughs> help us. Yeah. And you're like, okay, because actually during the keynote, you said something interesting, which was that like, a client comes to you and uh, you know, Fortune 500, rich billion dollar company. And they're like, we want to close the wealth gap. And you say, okay, show me your, it was it their defense budget? Security contracts. So why start there? Well, that, that was specifically because I was talking to um, one of the C-suite members who, who was interested in, in understanding how could he, as the CFO, embrace the work of anti-racism. 
Uh, and anti-racism has three foundational pillars. And I will just acknowledge that the definition of anti-racism is continually evolving and different people are defining it on their own terms. At Justice Informed, we look at the three pillars that come out of critical race theory and the Martin Luther King Studies uh, Institute for Nonviolence. Um, and so those are the, co the confrontation of white supremacy, the confrontation of hypercapitalism, and the confrontation of global militarism. And so if you're looking at this question of how can I embrace anti-racism in my organization, in my company, the first thing you have to look at is where along those three points do, does my work intersect? So if you're talking about, for instance, security, security is a part of the pillar of militarization. We know that um, when you're talking about security versus safety, and I will say there's a difference, security is done with weapons and, and, and power. Safety is a product of relationships and equitable distribution of resources. Um, and so if you don't have safety, you end up defaulting to security, which is why we say, hey, we have to have non-police responses. If you're talking about your security contracts and you're talking about operating in predominantly black and brown countries around the world, if you're talking about increasing your DEI, uh, hiring goals to include more people of color, you have to have, you have to have a lens on where security is being used instead of creating safety. And that comes mm -hmm. with your facilities, that comes with your offices. How are those offices secured? What are these security contracts that you're working with? And what are the vendors that you're working with? Is there any type of racial bias training that's required before they get approved for a contract? Is there any type of conversation around anti-blackness, white supremacy, these sorts of things with those security agents? Are security agents allowed to be armed on the premises? And if they are armed and you're sitting there like, hey, we want to open up more facilities in, you know, non-downtown spaces in large metropolitan cities like Chicago, New York, et cetera. Those non-downtown spaces are usually going to be inhabited by more people of color who usually have a different experience with any type of security, whether that's formal police, whether that's military overseas, or whether that's a, um, you know, a, a non-deputized security officer. So for a major company, if they want to get involved in anti-racism, one of the ways they can do it is looking at those three pillars hypercapitalism, white supremacy. And then the, the third one, as he and I were discussing, this question around militarization. And what happened next when you kind of broke this down for the CFO? Was he... <laughs> Was he on board or uh, where, where it was is interesting. that project His eyes kind of lit up because, you know, a lot of this, a lot of this work, I think that one of the things that, that, that I'm always trying to understand is how much can a person imagine? Right. Remember what I was saying earlier, right? All of ambition sits between your, all of possibility sits between your ambitions and fears. Mm -hmm. If all you're imagining is fear or all you're thinking about is how the market won't like this or how you have to explain this to your shareholders at the next investors meeting, these sorts of things, you're listening to fear at that point. You're not listening for ambition and ambition and fear both have a cost and a value. Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's important to be pragmatic, but it's not important to be fearful. Sometimes it's important to be cautious, but it's not necessarily important to be overly ambitious. And so when I was speaking with him, his eyes kind of lit up. And I, I say all of this because um, he had never imagined. He had simply never imagined that there was a possibility that the work would show up like this. Mm -hmm. Part of that was because he did not actually have an education in anti-racism. He didn't actually understand the three pillars. He had never gone through, he never read that. You won't hear that in White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. You won't, you know, there's only certain types of books that even teach this stuff. Mm -hmm. And most business schools, and I teach at business schools, most business schools stay away from this stuff. They don't even teach it. And so it was at this point where, you know, like I, I find with a lot of our clients, it's not that they're resistant. 
it's it's just ignorance that they just don't know. Mm-hmm. They just don't know. And at the point of being introduced to this information, that is where at Justice Informed, we're always like, all right, here's our invitation. We can't force you to adopt anti-racist principles. We can't force you to be more urgent about DEI. But as a black man from the city of Chicago, what I am going to do is I'm going to invite you to a more urgent way of doing this work that is informed by people like me and our staff who believe Mm -hmm. this is the pace we should be going. Now, you can decline my offer. You can try to negotiate or you can accept, but you can't say you didn't get an offer. You can't say you weren't invited to a bigger table and a better table. And that is what I got excited about with him. So. The conversation evolved and we were actually still in discussion. I mean, this is fairly recent. Um, we're still in discussion about this and he's actually expanded out now to think about all of these different pillars and, you know, his own leadership with uh, uh, an, the employee resource groups at the company and um, his own identity and how he shows up as, as a white man in these spaces um, and such. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work he's done, but he's, he's moved that point where in our spectrum of engagement that we talk about on our website from that point of understanding, like increasing your understanding Mm -hmm. to then showing that evidence of understanding, which is consensus. Like I agree. All right, let's move. Let's do something. You're now moving into the work of rooting. How do we start talking about practices, policies, things that are in writing um, to move forward? So that's where, that's where we're at right now. Do I know whether he's going to go the whole hundred yards with me? I don't know. It's my job to make sure that he knows what those hundred yards look like. Mm. It's interesting you say that we don't learn these things in business school. We also don't live this in a capitalist world, right? Um, How are we to expect that we can close racial wealth gaps in a society that is all about the bottom line? Previously, when we talked to companies about making the case for inclusivity and diversity, you know, we, and I'm talking like consultants, they reference statistics that say, well, you could make more money. This is good for the business. <laughs> Truly, this, yeah, is, no, this, this is, is what let, yeah, this just, is what has lit lit up their eyes in the past. Uh, yeah. Not what you're doing. How do we move away from that? And and really, it's at the core of what is a capitalist society. So you know, we're running up against a huge behemoth. Yeah. First, first we have to get rid of this uh, this this fallacy of merit. Um, merit does not make millionaires. Let's make that, let's put that on a t-shirt. Nice little acronym. Merit does not make millionaires. It is when the entire system is organized towards your favor with fervor. Um, When the entire system is being organized towards your favor, that is actually what privilege is. Um, It is when you have a systemic um, opportunity that is created because both culture and practices are oriented towards your favor. Um, When we're talking about financial wealth, first off, we have to step back and say um, we have to define wealth in a in a very fairly uh, with an important distinction. If wealth is simply the accumulation of money, then we fundamentally have an issue because the reality is like so. For instance, you can say that wealth is having a ton of money. In some of the business programs that I've been a part of, that are definitely not in your traditional business school. Wealth is defined as having an an excess of help to satisfy your aims in life, to have an excess amount of help. Resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So wealth is not always money. Sometimes it's simply another person. It's a family member. It's the fact that the schools are funded equitably. It's the fact that roads are taken care of, Mm -hmm. right? That That is wealth, being able to have sufficient amount of health and help. Uh, towards the satisfaction of your aims in life. I think part of the challenge with um, 
the way individuals think of wealth is they think of it individually. Um, so for example, uh, last yesterday, I was just uh, talking with one of my friends in Chicago. They're building an entirely new neighborhood. It's called the 78. So Chicago has 77 communities and Chicago is very much, well, it used to be, I think, a neighborhood based city. Increasingly, Which is where you're from. Let's, yeah, let's... I'm from and based in Chicago. Um, increasingly, it is not. Um, and it's interesting to see how the pandemic and people settling and moving different uh, places and such has really changed the fabric of the city. Um, I, I don't think that Chicago is going to be a neighborhood city for much long in the way that it was. I don't think that we're going to have ethnic enclaves. I don't think we're going to have cultural hubs. Everything that is cultural is eventually bought up by people who can afford it and then diluted down out of all of its cultural power uh, and then sold off to people who are coming in and think it's fascinating rather than important and holy. Uh, and so, so I look at that and I say, okay, so this is, this is the gentrification thing, but it's also the choice thing, right? Why build an entirely new neighborhood? an entirely new neighborhood right next to downtown Chicago because the river's there and it'll, you know, we'll get all this money and people can afford $4,000 a month apartments. We have 70 plus neighborhoods that are struggling. We have generational lack of investment, predominantly on the South and West sides of the city that are predominantly Black and Latino. When you look at that and you look at the everyday person who's buying a condo or renting an apartment in, let's say, the West Loop or in River North or downtown, these are like very affluent, predominantly white neighborhoods, mostly for the most part. These are all millennials doing this type of stuff who are, who are going into these spaces without any lens on how it affects everyone else. And as a lifelong three-generation Chicagoan, I see and feel it every time these skyscrapers go up. I see the, the we're prioritizing this and not that. People who come into communities and don't, they don't ask, how can I be a neighbor? They ask, what are the amenities? Mm -hmm. They don't ask, how am I a part of us? They say, what's in it for me? They don't ask, how do I ensure that I live my life in such a way that there is safety for everyone around me? Instead, they say, what is the security like in this neighborhood? Right? Like they're asking all the individual weaponizable questions because it's about them. And so when we're talking about creating wealth, the first thing we have to understand is underneath the systemic injustices are the individual opportunities for piracy. When you have individuals who are saying, hey, I want to make so much money that I can give back rather than thinking about, I want to live in such a way where I'm not taking first, you're fundamentally going to have an issue. Mm -hmm. You're going to have downstream issues. Um, and when you have people who look at it as, for instance, they'll look at it as real estate rather than land. I work, you know, I talk with indigenous tribes all the time. They're not talking about real estate. They're talking about land. This is the thing that supports life, not a thing you buy and sell and hope to flip. This is like, this is life giving. This is a question of human rights. You know, two nights ago, one of my friends, she couldn't find a bathroom in downtown Chicago. And that's because you can't, you can't find bathrooms and in downtown Chicago, where you don't have to pay something to just deal with something that is a, a, a bodily issue for everyone. Right. right. Like this is because we've now commodified a human right to dignity and body in this way. Right. And I used to when I was at University of Chicago and I would teach students, we would do a downtown scavenger, a social justice scavenger hunt. And one of the questions I'd ask them is, hey, you've got you got 45 minutes. You've got to find a bathroom. Two things have to be true. One, you can't pay any money. And two, you can't feel any shame. They never could find it. And that's because there's only three locations in all of downtown Chicago where that's possible. The Cultural Center, Millennium Park. 
down in the basement. They have bathrooms. And then in the Harold Washington Library, we bought and sold everything that could have been humane because we're talking about how it can uplift humans when it it, it, it fundamentally doesn't reinforce the importance of, of a collective society. Um, it doesn't reinforce the importance of interdependence. And it only further propagates the challenges of hyper-capitalist mentality, both as, a, as, as cities, as communities, and as individuals. I've learned a lot already about you know, what individuals can do or at least think about differently as we approach this problem together as a community. And the problem being this massive racial wealth, not really just a gap, like it's, it's a crater. Yeah. It's a chasm. I mean, it's a chasm, (laughs) you know, I'm a parent and, um, it's funny, you know, you teach your kids as they're growing up, like the importance of sharing and friendship and showing up for people. And yet, you know, they grow up and they, again, are raised in this capitalist world. And then it's about take, 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 (laughs) <laughs> competing exactly yeah. and it starts young it doesn't even you don't yeah. have to wait till you're an adult and so how do we square that as parents let's just yeah. talk about that and teachers man that's it for one of the challenges there is that we, we we teach fear because we think that it'll keep our kids safe like you know go, going to like racial violence and police day right like my my dad i remember he would he said one of his wishes for me was that I wouldn't get my ASS kicked by the Chicago police. That was one of his wishes. He told me that. Um, today's actually his birthday. He would have been 70 years old if he was still alive. Um, but he he knew that I needed to understand police from a very early age. He taught me respect authority, respect the police, respect, respect, respect. Whatever they say, just comply. I was seven years old the first time I was slammed on the wall of an alley in an alley behind my house and, and tried to be ticketed by a police officer who said I was, uh, it, it was a, uh, they were trying to put a moving violation on me and my friends because we were playing around with a lawnmower. We were like acting like we were riding a lawnmower. He said, you know, that's a vehicle. That's, it's got an engine in it. That's a moving violation. You know, you kids get arrested. You know, I'm seven years old, right? Like, like these are the things, and this is why my parents taught me fear. Now, what they thought they were teaching me was how to be safe. Now, let's go over to money. What do we teach our kids when they're young? Share, help people. And then when they're 25, why won't you make more? You get out the house, you compete, get out there. You got to, you got to take it. You got to, like, we, we are just, we're teaching that because we're afraid that they won't be independent. They won't be able to, to have a life that they love. But we don't teach them what their enough points are. We don't teach them. Hey, you got to have a number. You got to have a number. If you if your number is $80,000 a year, then let that be your number. Find joy in that. I used to live off of $35,000 a year. The reason why I did that, and I was a director of a nonprofit at the time, the reason why I was able to do that was because I was living in an interdependent community where I knew all my neighbors and we cared for one another. We cooked for one another. We came over each other's houses. We babysat for the ones who had kids. We traveled together. We did vacations together. It was interdependent. No, none of us made more than $50,000 a year. The wealthy ones did. And it was some of the best living of my life. The challenge is, where do you find entire communities of people like that? Most pe- Many people are not even trying to be in those communities. And as we look at this question of how we even define wealth and how we look at our children and how we look at what, what, what success is, 
if it's like what it is for you, I mean, here in Chicago, success is being able to self-isolate in some high rise, 23 stories up that has no green space whatsoever, where all the kids' parents are jockeying for the same slots at the local school, trying to pay and play their way inside. They have no ability to understand, you know, just leisure that is not without restraints. There's fences and cages every, like, it's just, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. like, look what we're Sounds teaching. like New York. Sounds like New York. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this is, a, we're teaching it. Do you think the pandemic has worsened things? And also now with the advance of Web3 and this push to more and more and more digital life, in other words, yeah. no longer going out into your community has become normalized and yeah. preferred by some people because now it's just like the way that I'm used to it. And on the one hand, I can see the benefit of technology in creating more transparency in the financial world Absolutely. to help more people and invite more people into investing and real estate. But also it doesn't help the community component that you're talking about necessarily. Yeah. There's not a conversation in modern capitalist theory about the value of community, uh, but there's also not a sufficient conversation about the cost of a lack of it. Um, and so, I mean, we can go macroscopic and, and look at government affairs departments for corporations and how they continually, you know, small in government and, 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 and ensure that, that our, our function, the, uh, what was left of a functioning democracy continues to devolve into what we have now. I believe that America is actually an oligarchy at this point. Um, the businesses run Congress, the businesses run the presidency, um, and increasingly they run the judiciary. Um, that is not a republic. That is not a democracy. And so, so we have this macroscopic issue. Um, but at the same time, the world is opening up in powerful ways, to your point. Technology is opening up the world in these incredible, incredibly powerful ways. And the parts of capitalism that are based on the tenets of free market capitalism and, and equal access to competition and these sorts of things, I think are more true than they have been in the past. Um, as it relates to the solid like frameworks of capitalism. And we've seen in many ways where sometimes that can be of benefit. What we've also seen is the other side um, of the structural parts of capitalism that are fundamentally incompatible with the, the continual propagation of human life. We've seen this as it relates to, to private equity companies and wealth management firms and these sorts of folks not having strengthened enough investment policies or not having an eye to ESG, environmental, social and governance uh, uh, requirements and guidance. And it's it's literally destroying the earth itself. Um, it rips entire communities apart. Um, technology created Airbnb. And at the same time, Airbnb led to the capitalization of entire communities that have now been bought up by large real estate players. And individuals, when we saw what happened during COVID, are completely priced out of being able to afford with cash what a major real estate developer company can when they're coming in to buy 40, 50, 60 company uh, buildings just in one neighborhood in Chicago. Yeah. Um, only to turn those into spaces where Airbnbs are being created and Airbnbs don't make create don't make community. Community requires that you're more than a tourist, that you're sticking around for some time. Mm-hmm. It's like, imagine if, if parenting, if, if we turn parenting into a, a world of contract babysitters. Wife swap and... <laughs> like, well, no, no, I just mean like, imagine if like what it takes to be a parent. Mm-hmm. Now imagine that all of parenting was being done by babysitters, people who clocked in and clocked out. Would there be anything lost in the relationships, even to that child to it themselves, would there be anything lost in what they learn? I learned? mean, it's traumatizing for the child, first of all, right, to experience so many different people that, that all the goodbyes 
you know that is that is the black community in america yeah I mean, we, when our, when our, when, when men are ripped from their homes and put into the criminal justice system, um, when, when, when we, we see so many women having to bear the brunt, the emotional, the physical and the intellectual labor of the, being the head of household in many of these spaces, um, the caretaking that is happening for elders and elders who are on fixed income salaries, who are having to provide for six, seven different people in a household, these sorts of things. Um, you know, this is, this is, this is the challenge. Like we, we're not actually building communities. And so whenever I'm talking about, you know, strategy for Fortune 500s or I'm, you know, talk, you know, we're working with the MacArthur Foundation around collective impact and um, looking at, 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 at all these different grantees they work with, right? Like when we're talking at these high levels, at the end of the day, Farnoosh, all I'm talking about is like, yo, do you know the power of what you want? And what it costs someone else, whatever you want to build, man, go build that thing. I ain't saying you can't build. What I'm saying is what the heck does it have to do with us? I know what you think it has to do with you, but what does it have to do with us? And nothing you do for the collective us can be done without understanding the harm that was only specifically put to some people and not others. Where harm is specific, the solution has to be as well. And no one can build a business in the modern age without having a lens towards financial and community equity. You can't. You can't do it sustainably. You're just setting yourself up to be a philanthropist. And most philanthropists are pirates. Pirates can't become philanthropists. Like you're, you're, you're giving back money that was supposed to be put in for the sustainability of many people. And you organize it over time. And then you like put your name on the freaking school for the kids that live across town where you won't live. Mm. Like this is a, it's a terrible cycle. And we're trying to get people out of that cycle. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get people off that, you know, off that, that, um, off that, uh, that out of that vehicle. Um, and we're doing it with an invitation. The train to nowhere. Yeah. We're doing it with specificity and with clarity, just letting people know like, yo, it's an invitation. And joy. Let's not forget that was another pillar Um, as our last question for you, Xavier, what keeps you going? Because this, this is, this is hard work and we are so grateful that you're doing it. It's a heavy, heavy lift. You and your clients working together to, to create change. I'm sure there are some really hard days. And so what are the pockets of joy that you, that you are finding in this work? Um, I'm going to be honest with you. It's been harder now than it ever has. Um, when I first started Justice Informed, there were not many companies like it, um, you know, and um, it was hard to get any business. It was hard to get anyone to agree. Um, it was it was it was very difficult. We were very small for some time. And when George Floyd was killed, um, everybody got really excited. They got really excited about jumping into the work. But we also saw was not just people who were excited about their business taking on this work or their foundation or their nonprofit taking on the work. We saw more people who were wanting to be practitioners, more people wanting to actually do the work like I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But two years later, what I've realized, um, and this is why I said it's hard to kind of wake up with joy all the time. Um, What I've realized is that um, now it's the practitioners who are selling non-urgent non-specific strategies. Um, and the hard thing is sometimes they look like me. They're people of color. They're people from low-income backgrounds. Um, and they're seeing this entire space as a come-up, as an opportunity. Um, or they're seeing it as a space, not for justice, but for something that's more akin to revenge. Um, and that's not love. That's not joy. That doesn't create peace. Um, they want to shout out white supremacy. I do too. Um, but the way in which it's happening 
is not one that's conducive towards accountability and reconciliation. Uh, we have to live in the world with the people we're protesting against. And so how will we do that? Like, that's a, that's a hard question. Um, and so where I do find joy now is in these new ideas I'm imagining, not about, not about or for our clients, but to bring in the practitioners to sort of have a, a tribunal of the DEI world uh, to say, hey, y'all, this work has to be done, but it has to be done in a way that restores the world, not just individually restores some of us. It has to restore all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I get it, I'm getting more and more excited about that, though I'm still trying to understand and, and reach out and hear like, yo, who wants, who wants some of that? Who wants to work on that part? What is the new us? What is the new community? Um, now that COVID has ravaged the world and split apart, you know, uh, so many of us, there will be a coming back together. Uh, and that has to be architected differently. That's what, that's what gets me excited now. I think you should write a book. You should doctrinize this. I'm working on a book. Yes. I am. I just, I'm I'm just a couple months through. We're hoping to release it (laughs) next year. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Let us know how we can support you because I, I agree. We need consistent efforts. They have to be prepared for the work. They have to be clear-eyed about the work, but they also have to survive the work. And that's where the joy thing comes in. Like, mm-hmm. I can't survive this work unless I keep joy in my heart. This is hard stuff, right? And what I'm seeing is when you don't do the work with the desire to restore all, eventually you get burned out at the cost of burning others too. Mm-hmm. People have good hearts. I believe that. And, I, and that's what I'm saying. Like, that's the, the thing that we need to get refreshed and renewed in the world. Xavier Ramey, thank you so much. I could have spent more and more hours with you, um, but we will have you back for sure anytime, but especially when your book is out. So happy for that. Thank you for making the time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks to Xavier for joining us. Check out XavierRamey.com and JusticeInformed.com to learn more about him and his mission. I'll put those links in our show notes. On Wednesday, stay tuned because I'm going to air my panel from the Disruptive Discourse event where I speak to industry leaders about how companies can facilitate closing racial wealth gaps, not just having DE&I departments, but actually having the follow-through and accountability and measurements to enhance the lives of their marginalized employees and those within their community. Stay tuned. I hope your day is so money. Money.